So I have kind of an embarrassing story, Michael. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm listening. All right. Well, I had to go to this meeting in Cleveland. It was among different business leaders and uh, there was sort of this icebreaker. They did this thing where they said, okay, you know, everybody stand up. Whoever's been working here in the Cleveland business community for the last five years, take a seat. 10 years, take a seat. 15 years. And then it ended. They said, now for the grizzled veterans, 20 years. Okay, and let me guess, you were still standing. Uh, yeah, because technically I have been working in Cleveland's business community for, <laughs> for 20 years. And then they gave all of us, you know, quote, grizzled veterans this round of applause. Like, oh, it's so crazy. They're, you're still in the working world at your old age. I mean, I'm 41, Michael. It's not like I'm a senior citizen, right? I know. I get it. I get it. Hey, nothing to be embarrassed about, though. Uh, 20 years in the working world in Cleveland. Honestly, it's a good thing, right? It is. It is. I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. And, you know, it's not just 20 years in the working world. For me, it's 20 years working in early stage technology mm. companies. And, yeah, it's kind of wild when you think back to 2003. Early stage tech looks a lot different than what it does today. Yeah. Okay. So today's episode is about you being a grizzled veteran and, you know, that being in tech. <laughs> well, not quite. Not quite. But Okay. What I mentioned before, being in early stage technology startups for the last 20 years, I don't know. I thought it might be a good time to tell the story of maybe a more recent early stage tech startup, one that is actually a sponsor of Industry the Product Conference and has been of the New York Product Conference as well. And one that in full disclosure, I'm technically an investor of, and that's the story of Bloomfilter. Okay, yeah, I remember meeting them in New York Product Conference, really nice guys. Um, yeah, excited for this one. Yeah, uh, yeah, and actually it was at that conference, the New York Product Conference, they announced a major $7 million seed funding round, which was kind of at the exact time that most startups were struggling to raise any capital at all. So yeah, kind of a feather in their cap, and that's part of their story. Okay, so here we go today, the early story of Bloomfilter. Yes, right after we roll this intro. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective, where your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belsito. But first, let's pause to hear a quick word from our sponsors. As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. 
This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live small group cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Okay. So the story of Bloom Filter. Yes, Bloom Filter, it's technically a process intelligence platform for software development. Their whole mission is built on this belief that businesses rely on software development to solve problems and deliver a better user experience. However, software development projects, they're known for missing deadlines and budget estimates. There's some research that even shows that two thirds of software projects are either challenged or fail altogether, while 70% of software projects are delivered late over budget or they're not delivered to the original specifications. And so Bloom Filter, they're setting out to change with this process, mining and predictive algorithms. It's really meant to help software development teams identify bottlenecks in the development process, which is meant to objectively predict project outcomes and deliver software on time and within budget. That sounds like it was right out of their press release, Mike. We can do better. <laughs> well, some of it may have come from their <laughs> press release, but I'm not just here to recite their press release. I actually sat down with one of Bloom Filter's co-founders recently, Andrew Wolf, and I'll let Andrew tell you in his words, a bit of the origin story of Bloomfilter. I started developing professionally when I was 13. Uh, I grew up really poor and I found some communities online on like Usenet, uh, which I'm sure a lot of the younger listeners don't know what that is, uh, ICQ and other development communities. Um, picking up odd jobs of like, hey, fix this uh, Perl script or do this PHP thing for me back in the early days of PHP. And so, uh, Having done that for a long time, I started working on some open source stuff, uh, starting on like a Linux kernel and all, all of that jazz. Um, 
basically starting like full real-time work when I was 18. And it's always been really a nagging problem for me. I'm, a, I'm pretty meticulous with my word. And I really disliked committing to a date and say, hey, I'll get this done in two weeks. And then realizing two weeks later that you're probably not even 50% done. And getting that wrong really made me upset. And so I kept you know, up-leveling my skills. I went and graduated college, got my uh, BS in computer science, and then my master's in computer science. But the problem never really got better, right? As I got more and more teams, as I started getting into leadership, as I started getting into management, I really still could not answer when we get things done accurately. Uh, and, and then I'd say probably a little over 10 years ago, um, I, I had sold a, a startup and I started freelancing. So I didn't know what I wanted to do next because I swore I'd never do another startup again, but here I am. And on these projects, I was working with some of the largest companies I've ever worked with uh, ever, uh, Staples and uh, ExxonMobil and Panasonic, just to name a few. And as I was working on them as an enterprise architect, I'd realized that these large huge multinational uh, system integrators, Accenture, Deloitte, et cetera, couldn't do it either. They couldn't tell you when you were going to get it. And they would overbill. And it was, to me, like anthema to how our industry should operate. Uh, but there was one project in particular uh, at a local health care provider. And we were working on this project that was like a diabetes monitor for children. And it was a really cool project. It was like a, before it became really popular, it was an ultraviolet uh, light thing that you put on your arm and it would Bluetooth into your phone. And you basically, without pricking your finger, be able to measure your blood pressure. Those are ubiquitous now, but at the time that I was working on it, it was a pretty novel piece of technology. And I was, re- I was brought on here to kind of rescue the project. The, the, Project itself was, I think, at that time, 50% over budget and late by three or four months. And you would think it would be the device that was late, but the device worked fine. It was pending FDA approval and a bunch of other uh, things that it needed to be able to be rolled out as a medical solution. But it was the app that was delayed, which to me seemed like the easy part of this whole thing, uh, given my background in software. So I joined, worked on it for about six months, only for the project to be canceled because it was way over budget and late. There was no reason. But that really devastated me because I, I saw, you know, during the clinical trials when we were testing the app and everything else, the impact it could have on these kids' lives. And to see a project like that fail just really gutted me. Uh, and so I started a company called Skip List, which was uh, basically around the premise of thoughtful software, which was this industry has become thoughtless. We started shipping things people don't need. We started, you know, shipping things that were actively detrimental to people, spyware, actually spying on people. And I thought we need to change the paradigm. And the way I wanted to do it was through software consulting. I saw how big the industry was. Uh, I saw how perverted it was in terms of the incentives and how they were aligned with between the consultancy and the business. Ultimately, I ran that company for five years. We built it to be a pretty big size. But I realized they would never get it to the scale that a product could get to and decided we need to go after this from a product perspective. I'm truly going to solve the fact that 68% and now 78% of software projects are late over budget or don't ship. We need something that scales way better than a consultancy can. Pretty soon after that, we decided to build what is currently Bloom Filter. 
So if Bloom Filter is the story, Skip List sort of its prologue. In a way, yeah. I mean, Skiplist being the software development services and consulting company that had a similar mission, but Andrew and his team felt like they could make an even bigger impact if they were building this as a product. From what I understand, that first business, the services business, it was a decent business, right? It, it has to take a lot of confidence to move on from that, something that's working to something that's more unproven. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's not as if Bloomfilter simply made a sharp pivot based on a, a whim or a hunch. They were seeing their own customers validate some of their early hypotheses. Here's Andrew again with more on how they knew they were onto something with the idea to refocus their efforts on being a product company. So a lot of companies first start talking to people and they talk to like 10 people and one person says, yeah, I could see that. And then nine people say, eh, I don't really have that problem. And then they, what they do inevitably is by conversation 20, they found two or three people that meet some sort of persona and some sort of beachhead in the market that they can solve a problem for. And if they're smart, they go after those two or three people. They carve out a nice niche market and scale from there, right? We know how this works at this point. Startups are this fabricated mystery they used to be 20 years ago. That wasn't the case with us. Uh, we had actually talked to about 30 some odd people over the summer just to do customer interviews that we recorded. Um, we talked to many more users and everyone had this problem. It manifested differently. Their personas were slightly different in a lot of cases, but we knew that like, if everyone has this problem, then all we need to do is pick the people that like look the same and enough of them to be able to solve their problem. And then we can expand from there and we like, we can become a uh, industry defining company one step at a time. So we just kind of knew it was real. And again, everyone's like, yeah, if you solve that problem, I'll buy it. You know, it was like every single person had this problem, you know, their project. It's kind of sad that our industry's in the state that it is that 78% of projects don't ship late over budget and everyone feels that pain. Like that's kind of embarrassing. But on the other side, it makes for a really great market opportunity if you're solving that problem. And from there, they started turning their services customers into product customers and in turn, putting the pieces together to build the team. Here, let's go back to Andrew. We originally started it, uh, unironically, as an internal platform for Skipless. Like we were struggling, as you can imagine, to tell people when they were going to get what they paid us for and uh, with how much it was going to cost them. And so we were like, we have to solve this problem. It's existential to being able to be a good consulting firm. Uh, so we built V1 out, uh, well, what we thought was V1, it was really a POC um, in November of 21. And we started showing it to some of our customers and it was really interesting. Like, oh, would you guys use this kind of thing to track our progress and feel good about what you were paying for? Like, yeah, but can I buy that? Like, what do you mean can you buy that? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. service is great, whatever. Can I buy? <laughs> What was this POC of Bloom Filter? Like, yeah, sure. So basically that was the response to the first five customers you talked to. And so Chris and I, who'd been working on this on our spare time, he was my CTO, I was a CEO. And uh, we were like, maybe we should just go after this. You know, like I said, to, to, it, so many people want it. This has got to be a market for this. Um, so we decided by that Christmas that this was something we were going to kind of pursue full time, but we also had our management jobs. So we started actually iterating on the product right after uh, Christmas that year in January. 
Uh, we had uh, the MVP out, I want to say in March of that year. Uh, we applied to Techstars Chicago. Um, and then also near that time, uh, while Chris and I had both sold things in our past, and I was a chief salesperson over at Skiplist and had sold quite a bit of services, selling product and making that repeatable and like, it's a little different, right? Like you have to sell what you have versus what they could have. And services you're selling the dream and startups you're still selling the dream, but in a different way. And so uh, we applied to Techstars. We brought Blake on, Blake Squires, as a you know bit of an advisor to help us kind of figure out how we position this thing in the market and uh, build, build a sales funnel. Uh, got into Techstars. We did that. It was funny. We brought on uh, two engineers from Skiplers, Brian Kerr and Loki. Um, and both of them, uh, you know, we would drive back and forth in Chicago by Tesla, uh, which was always a good fun. So sitting in the car five hours, just shooting the, the, the uh, shit, as it were, um, just going back and forth. Uh, and so we did that for a summer. And then really right after that, uh, uh, advisor we had in tech stars, Eric Severing House, and uh, Blake both kind of approached me and said, hey, this is a really cool idea. I love what you guys are doing. I'd love to come on. And we were still really kind of early there. We had some early traction, but it was still, you know, you squint and you, you really don't have too much. Um, and so we, Chris and I looked at each other and said, well, having two more people in here with certainly with our level of ambition on what we want to build this to makes sense. So we brought on uh, Blake and Eric as co-founders, uh, and the rest is kind of history. Uh, you know, I became a co-CEO cause I wanted to focus on product engineering and customer success. Eric was more than happy to do the sales marketing and fundraising. And so we were able to optimize our skills there. Blake's really great at the operational stuff. And also is a ter terrific pitch hitter in all of this. Um, he can do really do any of one of our jobs and Chris is a CTO. So we did a lot of cool stuff. Uh, from then until we raised our round uh, earlier this year. So they have the team in place, including Blake. That's Blake Squires, somebody I've actually worked with and for in many parts of my past life. Actually, my first job right out of business school was working for Blake and his partners. Which is 20 years ago, as we've learned. <laughs> yeah, almost 20 <laughs> years ago. But yeah, anyway, Blake was a co-founder of a company called Findaway. Um, which actually just sold to Spotify last year for something like $200 million. Nice. And then later, Blake went on to found another company, Movable, and I ended up becoming the VP of product and later president of Movable. It's actually one of my first true product roles. It sounds like if we were doing a product journey episode of you personally, Blake would play a big role in that episode too. <laughs> he probably would. Uh, but you know, we should pause here and we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And then we'll be back with more on the Bloomfilter story. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. This episode is brought to you by Yahoo Finance. 
Wouldn't it be great if you could see all of your investment and retirement accounts in one place? With Yahoo Finance, you can consolidate your views with multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Honestly, this has been a lifesaver for me. I've used Yahoo Finance to consolidate all of my various 401k and investment accounts so I can see everything all in one place. And it makes it incredibly easy to manage. So if you're struggling with that, check out Yahoo Finance. For over 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart a great investor. And that's how Yahoo Finance ensures that you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. So go to yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. Before the break, we learned a bit about the origin story of Bloomfilter, from starting its origins in a software consulting company, Skiplist, to starting to become a product company. And we heard Andrew mention that part of their journey, very similar to that of many other major tech companies, by starting underneath the platform of a major accelerator, in this case, Techstars. Here's Andrew with more on their Techstars journey. I got to play a unique role as a Techstars founder because I wasn't a first-time founder, but almost everyone else in the class was. And so I became semi-mentor to the younger people in the group that uh, didn't quite, you know, there's just stuff you don't do the second time. You know, this as a founder yourself, like there's a bunch of stuff that you first time, like, why did I ever do that? Well, it just wasn't smart, you know? Um, and so you're able to help guide and be like, no, don't, don't worry about that. You're worried about the wrong thing. You're worried about month 15 problems and month two, <laughs> focus on month two problems. And that, that was helpful. What else was helpful was we got to spend time kind of, you know, free of the conditions of bootstrapping, right? Like if you're bootstrapping, you spend your day selling and you spend your night coding. But in Techstars, we got to spend our time really on the product and getting more and maturing a product and really thinking about the direction the product needed to take. And that allowed us to really accelerate what like the big thing in Techstars Chicago is jobs to be done and that whole framework by uh, Bob Mesta. And he, like, that was their number one thing. What jobs do your product be done? So we really focused on the jobs our product was doing, which I think having three months to just focus on that without the outside pressure of having to also go and sell it and do all those other things, I think was really healthy for uh, down the road when we had to start actually doing that, putting the product in front of customers and everything else. We were always putting it in front of users. I mean, I talked to users three to four or five times a day and show them what we were thinking, do customer interviews and all that. But it took the pressure off of having to actually then turn that customer interview or that customer feedback into a sale. So for Andrew, he had already been a founder before. He had been there and done it, so to speak, you know, as an entrepreneur. So he wasn't learning necessarily the nuances of what it meant to be a founder for the first time, but it gave him something that was maybe even more important, which was time to focus on the product. Yes, and it also allowed them to continue to expand the team as we learned to. And that's an important step in the journey. At least it was for Bloomfilter. Because when you start to make new hires, things start to change. Let's go back to Andrew. Everything changes at this stage with every hire. Maybe not so much anymore that we're like 15 people. But when you bring on your first VP of sales, 
what changes is now, instead of me taking every sales call, uh, we now have someone to do that for me and Eric, right? When we bring in our first customer success meeting, I don't have to do customer success for every person. So that means it's done better, right? Because you're doing 17 jobs, you're doing none of them particularly well. Uh, so being able to just focus around what you need to do to make the company better. And so, you know, we brought our first VP of product, which was great, Bill Holman. And the crazy thing about that was I was so focused on like the strategy and the vision. That's my personality. Uh, We ultimately ended up in a world where Bill was able to handle a lot more of the share strategy with me and own the tactics. And so the, the cards became better written there's a lot more granularity and focus on what the requirements the devs were given. So the end result there is we actually ended up being way better at getting what we set out to get because there was a lot more details given to the developers than there was before. What changes is really the scope and the function of what everyone does and being able to level yourself up out of jobs, which you know is the goal of a CEO is like, if you're doing your job well, you're firing yourself from every job you ever had, and you're continually reinventing what you need to do for the company. And that's kind of what we've done, right? As we've gotten the, like, I don't have to do product anymore. I didn't have to do engineering because we had Chris to do that to begin with. And just how do I fire myself from every job that I had so I can do the job the company needs me to do? And so the team at Bloomfilter, they continued to build and started to raise money. Some serious money, actually. Yeah, they raised $7 million back in springtime earlier this year. The funding included $5.5 million of equity funding led by Magarac Venture Partners with participation from Sequoia, HPA, North Coast Ventures, Techstars, and others. And then another $1.5 million of venture debt from Pacific Western Bank. Yeah, and that's a big deal. I mean, look, especially as an Ohio-based company, you don't see $7 million seed rounds with funding from big name players like Techstars and Sequoia very often, at least not in the tech climate we're experiencing, especially back in the spring. No, it's true. It's a big deal. And you got in on the action, it sounds like. Well, I'm a very, very small member of North Coast Ventures. And yes, on the side, I did make an investment of my own. My first technically my first individual investment in a company actually, but we're talking very small stuff. I wasn't named in that press release, Michael. (laughs) Well, they missed a big opportunity there, but um, it's still a big deal. It's very cool. So Bloom Filter gets this funding and then what? They're off to the races. They sail into the sunset. I, I don't know about off to the races, but yeah, I mean, they're definitely sprinting. They're definitely doing all the things that they can do to push forward. But I asked Andrew if there were challenges that they faced despite all of that. And here's his answer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're going through some of them right now. I mean, it's, I mean, the fundraising, it's nice that everyone gets to see the great result that was Eric and uh, I's hard work in getting it there, more Eric than I. But we probably talked to, we talked to our fair share of VCs, right, to get there. And some of it was us being picky and, you know, saying we want to work with the best VCs and we want to work with the people that are going to respect the vision and respect the people that work here. Um, so there was some pickiness going on. But on the other side of it, too, it's like we were raising in one of the worst fundraising markets on the planet. So it was in no way easy. It was definitely um, as much of a struggle. And when you're being picky, it's even more of a struggle uh, to get the money. And that, that was something that we, I mean, we routinely had to overcome uh, on that side. And right now we're in one of the worst purchasing markets for B2B software in history, right? The history of SaaS anyways. And like 
it's really hard to get contracts across procurement. We struggle every day. We sit here and we ruminate on go to market and how we get the product that we know is going to help people. We've seen it. We have the metrics. We know this is going to not only make them more effective and efficient, but it's going to make them more observable and predictable, which is super important when you're talking about how they can save money and uh, do more with less. But at the same time, procurement's like, well, do we need another software solution? I mean, this is kind of expensive. Do we need it? And so we, we're, you know, we're still fighting the, the headwinds that is today's market. I think that those are the stories that once you overcome them, right, you start to be able to make a more compelling case because you knew that procurement uh, office one, but when you said X, and so you try X elsewhere, and then you build this whole repertoire of how to get past the pushback and procurement and everything else, it's going to make us a lot more sturdy come down the road when the market conditions are better. So market conditions may be murky, but the team at Bloomfilter is still running strong. More on that after one more quick break. Before the break, we learned about the story of Bloomfilter. It's early start, it's time through tech stars, persevering through a tumultuous tech climate after raising a great seed round of capital earlier this spring. Yes, but I asked Andrew, what does he wish people knew about what it takes to start a company like Bloomfilter? Because people can read about the funding and, and that's cool, but then what? What else is going on inside of a company at this stage? Yeah, it's a great question. Here's what he had to say. When you're building, trying to build something great, Right, we sit in our we sit in our all hands, and we literally we we spent hours doing this before, um, probably half a day one time, just tearing apart our product from like top to bottom. Like that, I don't like the like that blue color, the way it looks on this page. I don't like the way that font looks. I don't like the way this lines up. And we will go screen by screen and just tear ourselves apart in the most meticulous, aggressive way possible. But it only serves to make us better. And I think if you want to build great product, you got to, I, I always say great product's a contact sport, right? Like you can't be afraid of the contact because whether you're making contact with the users and the users are usually nicer if you're doing it right. Because, you know, they might not tell you why they're not going to buy, but they certainly aren't signing the check, right? And so you have to read between the lines of like, well, they're saying that they love the product, they love the direction, but they're not ready to sign yet. Like you need to have the courage internally to attack your own creation and say, how do we make this better? And how do we do that every day? So that, you know, when we do make contact with the market, they can't do anything or say anything to us that we haven't already told ourselves and we haven't already began to work on and already began to iterate on. I think that's the first thing I want people to like really get about balloon filter. I think the second thing that everyone should know as well is like, again, the, the tireless hours people work to get some of these features out there and the, the level of craftsmanship and care people put into what we're building, because it's a mission that I think everyone in our industry has felt at some point, right? Whether you're on the development side, the product side, design side, you've all been, we've all been part of projects where like, man, if I had shipped, you know, my career would have been different. The company I worked for would have been different. And instead, we have to think about what ifs rather than it should have shipped. And so everyone has those stories that allow them to really care about our mission and what we're working on. And that translates to the work people are doing to build a great, terrific product. So what we're doing isn't easy or it would have been done before. And that's where I, I think 
I wish people would see that of like, you know, yes, they see the end result. They see the feature on the page that they like. They see the the uh, bug that got fixed, but they don't see the care and the, you know, the grind that went into like actually solving and building that. Um, and you know, the team deserves as much credit uh, as possible in any of these things. Because without them, I mean, it would be two guys in a garage, like, with a lot of hope, but not a lot of product. And in starting to close out the conversation, I asked Andrew if he had any advice for people, whether they're product people or they're working on starting a company. Here's what he had to say. Think about how you can make your process measurable. I think most people look at the one lagging indicator is velocity, throughput, lead time, reaction time, cycle time. I think those are great, but they don't give you the leading indicator results that you need to be able to make strategic decisions. So I would do twofold. One, start to think about some of how to fix some of the way your teams ship by looking at the process and making the process measurable. Not the people, the process. And the second thing I'd say, start looking at leading indicators, right? How do we know we're going to go off the track, right? That's why historically it's been green, 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 red reporting. It's because everyone's using lagging indicators to say, well, velocity looks like it's good. It's staying in the same standard deviation. Okay, it's going down a little bit. But by the time you actually catch up to it, five or six sprints, it's already too late to correct it. So using those and finding those leading indicators for your team so that you get out ahead of problems is what a platform like Bloomfilter will help you with. But you can help yourself without a platform like Bloomfilter. Start to think in that manner of how do I make sure I know what my team is doing and I've instrumented my process in a way that I could help, I can, one, have my management help me, but two, I can also help myself and help my teams and lead them better by doing this. Well, that's gonna wrap things up here. My hope is that three years from now, we have a big follow-up story on Bloomfilter and we could check in to see if they met those three-year goals that Andrew talked about. Yeah, look, we're just gonna have to see. I'm rooting for them though, but yeah, let's wrap things up here. So for Mike Belsito, I'm Michael Saka, and this is Rocketship.fm.